I know a lot of us were out of town last week on uh, vacation, the last vacation of the summertime because of Labor Day, so welcome back. Um, if you missed last week, uh, you missed the kickoff to this new sermon series. It's called Wait. What? Oh, yeah, we're going to try that again. It's called Wait. What? Absolutely. So we're uh, looking at this, these interesting parables that come right in the middle of Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel has several parables that are unique to Luke. A couple of them you know. Uh, you know this, the parable of the prodigal son. That's only found in Luke. Uh, the parable of the good Samaritan. That's only found in Luke. And sometimes those big kind of headlining parables overshadow some of the other parables that Jesus teaches. And when you look at them, you might think to yourself, wait, what? It reminds me of this game. Last week when, we were, when I was preaching, kind of right in the middle of the sermon, I realized you can say that expression in a lot of different ways. Uh, it, it can imply something completely different. It reminds me of a game that actors sometimes use when they're um, trying to get into character. They'll take one little line of script and they'll see how many different ways they can say that script and evoke some type of a different emotion. So some of these parables that you read, you might just read and you need to like hear it again. It's like, wait, what? Some of them, you might be shocked at what Jesus is saying. You might say, wait, <laughs> what? And then some of them you might get pretty angry about, and you're like, wait, what? It's all, exactly. So it's all of these different types of parables that evoke different types of responses. And this morning's might be that last one. It might be the one that makes you a little bit frustrated. Jesus even, Jesus knows what he's doing when he's teaching parables. He knows that they're confusing. He's purposeful about that. At the end of his first parable that he teaches in the Gospel of Luke, he even says, I'm giving these confusing stories to you so that you can get a glimpse of the kingdom of God and so that others might not be able to understand. It's a way in which it means get a little bit closer. Lean in a little bit for this lesson. You're going to have to think about this a little bit harder than just listening in passing. So we find ourselves this morning where Jesus is on a tear. He's teaching and he's preaching and he's moving through things. And he's teaching these stories and the crowds are starting to gather and people are starting to be attracted towards Jesus's teaching. And now that he has their attention, he starts to turn up the heat a little bit. Last week's parable comes just before this one. We're going to look at four parables that are back to back to back to back in the Gospels of these four weeks. And last week's came just before this one and last week's parable was kind of calling people out. If you remember, it was the story of the kind of the wedding banquet and the idea that, you know, who are you? What are you doing with your guest list? Are your guest lists and your seating charts and who you're surrounding yourselves with for your own reputation? Or are they for relationships? It's a little bit of a stinger. But then this morning, he turns up the heat a little bit more and he gives them this kind of gut punch of a parable. We're in a different, slightly different scene. They're no longer around the table. Jesus and his disciples are back out on the road. And we come across Luke 14, uh, verses 25 through 33. Here now for the word of God. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it. 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he'll send a delegation and ask for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciples if you do not give up all your possessions. Wait, what? This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, sometimes it is so difficult to understand what you're saying to us. And we recognize that without your spirit, we can understand nothing. So come now into this space and fill our hearts and fill our minds. And may the same spirit that moved at the time of writing this scripture be present among us now in the time of hearing it. May we be faithful to it. May we be transformed by it. And may we go from this place confidently to live it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So uh, about five years ago, (laughs) I made a life-altering commitment. And that commitment lasted five days. I was alone. Um, I was living by myself in an apartment in Durham, and I was working for the Duke admissions office. Um, And during the months of December to March, we worked from home, and all we did was read applications for about 10 hours a day, every day, in front of a computer screen. So December to March is already cold and dark and lonely, and the idea of working from home with just a computer screen and, and admissions applications was a bit of a nightmare. So I had a brilliant idea one afternoon. Gabby was out. Gabby and I had just started dating. Um, and Gabby and I, uh, um, Gabby had gone out of town for the weekend. And I decided that I was going to go over to a farm in North Raleigh called Saving Grace. And it was going to be there that I was going to be found by my new best friend. Leo was a three-month-old mix. And about the cutest thing that you've... Okay. Let's... Yeah. Pump the brakes. So Leo is about the cutest thing that you've ever seen. Um, And when I arrived to the farm, Leo was the first dog to come up and greet me. Leo ran up and he began to jump all over me and he was so excited and he knew that we were going to be best friends. He could just already tell. Now Leo was a licker and also a biter, but he only did it out of love. Uh, There wasn't anything there. All he wanted to do was play and be best friends. Perfect, I thought. So I grabbed Leo, and without either one of us having any hesitation about it, I picked him up, put him in my car, and off we were to our new life together. First stop, RDU Airport, where we were going to surprise Gabby um, and show her this newfound friendship that we had. So Leo was in the front seat, and he was in the back seat, and he was in the other back seat, and he was in the trunk, and he was everywhere during that first 20 minutes of excitement. And we get to the terminal... And there's Gabby, and she can see all of the joy and excitement that's just kind of coming out of this car that she stops dead in her tracks. Uh, Gabby's enthusiasm for this left her speechless. So speechless that she didn't talk to me the whole way home. 
So off we were to our new life together. And even in that first hour of knowing each other, I could tell that Leo and I were going to be absolute best friends. We were going to be the couple that was, you know, running on every afternoon. We'd go for, like, walks on the beach. I mean, we would go for, like, the park where we'd meet other human dog couples. Uh, we'd watch basketball and football, and we'd do all the things that 20-somethings, single, unmarried 20-somethings should do with a dog. It was going to be great. That's what Facebook told me I was supposed to do. That's what uh, all of the rom-coms told me I was supposed to do. That's what everything told me I was supposed to do. That was the next step in life. And if you've ever watched The Art of Racing in the Rain, you know that's exactly what it's supposed to be like. A dog will change your life, they said. A dog will change your life. (laughs) Have you ever bitten off more than you can chew? Have you ever made a commitment without really thinking about what it might entail after you sign the dotted line? There's no payment up front to sign the dotted line, but it's about what the cost is afterwards. Jesus, uh, at this point in his ministry, is drawing in the crowds by the masses. And the people are starting to come, and they are absolutely loving everything that Jesus is saying. I'm sure a lot of the parents were going in, like some of you might have when going to look at dogs, say, we're not buying anything today. We're just going to look. We're not going to make any commitments. And I'm sure that's what a lot of people said to themselves. But then when you get there, you realize how magnetic of a person Jesus was. His teachings were unlike anything you've ever heard. His miracles were unlike anything that you've ever seen. And the promises that he made were unlike anything that you could possibly imagine. Jesus was this magnetic person because he was both loving but also confident. He was certain, but he was also compassionate. He was awe-inspiring, but he was also quite mysterious. So how could you possibly pass this man up? How could you possibly let this opportunity slip through your fingertips? And so a lot of people, the crowds just began and said, that's it, we're following him. Giving up everything and starting this new life together. Jesus gets a sense that um, some of the people in the crowds were just trend chasers. They were just people that were kind of following the next best thing. They were the people that had just kind of signed the dotted line without really thinking about what this was going to cost him. One of the things I love about Luke's writing about Jesus, Luke's version of Jesus, is that Luke's Jesus is a little bit more bold, a little bit more honest, a little bit more forthcoming about things. He's not like Mark and Matthew's Jesus, who is like, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's not like John's Jesus, who's mysterious and says, come and see, that kind of alluring thing where he's like, ooh, that's tempting. Luke's Jesus is a little bit more like, follow me, and you're going to be fishers of men, and it's going to cost you something. Are you sure that you want to do this? Are you sure that you're ready to make that next step? This could hurt a little. This might upset some people. It's no wonder that Luke's Jesus is the only one who's run out of town by his home crowd They almost pushed him off of a cliff because Luke's Jesus is a little bit more blunt about how it's going to be. So it's no surprise that at the peak of Jesus's ministry of his teaching and preaching and miracles, he wants to slow down everyone and say, not so fast, bandwagon fans. Let's take some time to think about this. In this series of parables, Jesus lays out the terms and conditions of what it's going to take to become one of his followers. He's straight up 
In the short passage that we just read, three times Jesus says something to the effect of, whoever comes to me and does not do blank cannot be my disciples. You have to do certain things. It requires something of you. Yes, you can follow me. You can sign the dotted line, but the cost comes after you begin to follow. It's just like a builder who, when they build a tower, the tempting and the allure of building a new building, it's great and it's fancy, but if you're a builder and you haven't thought about what it's going to cost you from start to finish, you might as well not even pour the foundation. Or if you're a king going into war, you might get all amped up and jacked up about how excited it's going to be to kind of overthrow whatever it might be that you're overthrowing to defend your camp, to defeat the enemy. But if you don't have the troops, if you're not ready, if you haven't considered the costs, you might as well not even dust off your shields. A dog will change your life, they said. But if you don't have a dog crate, if you don't have food, if you don't have a leash, if you haven't considered that that dog might chew through all of your shirts, all of your cords, all of your rugs, everything, don't even go to the farm. Because a dog will change your life. Following Jesus will change your life, but it will also change your life, if you know what I'm saying. How does it change your life? One of the real dangers of the church, I think, uh, right now and kind of over its history is that we've gotten the model wrong about what it means to follow Jesus. A lot of us insist that um, if you're going to follow Jesus, that means faith is first. That means Jesus is number one. Jesus is number one, and then so your spouse becomes number two, and then your kids become number three, and maybe your job is number four. And while that is a perfectly okay example, there are some unintended consequences there when you look at faith through that lens. According to like that ranking system, going on a mission trip is a priority as opposed to staying home and maybe working on that marriage that's a little bit on the fence right now. Committing to that extra Bible study or committing to that extra leadership opportunity at the church goes ahead of maybe going to your daughter's dance recital. And while, uh, yeah. <laughs> you heard it from a child, folks. <laughs> Sermon's over. That's done. The ranking system inherently says that the cost of discipleship is your family. It's everything that's not number one. It's everything that's behind it. So the cost is your family. The cost might be sometimes your job. The cost might be your social life. But I don't think that's what Jesus calls us to do. A better way of thinking about what the cost of discipleship, what it really means to follow Jesus, is picturing a circle. And what's at the very center of that circle? What's the bullseye? What are you aiming for? What's the focal point of your decision-making? What's the focal point of your life? To do a hierarchy in an order, that might send you into all types of difficult decisions to make, but the focal point gives you clarity about what it means. What's the light at the center of your life which illuminates the rest of your life? It's difficult to see that center without zooming in a little bit. Picture a dartboard for a second. If you have a dartboard and you throw it at the bullseye, yes, there's a bullseye, but you also know that there is one exact center point of that entire circle. Getting to the bullseye is close, but it's not the exact center. What's the center of your life by which you make all other decisions? In order to help Jesus, uh, or in Jesus in order to help the people around him, 
understand, he gives them a pretty provocative statement. And you heard it just a second ago. Jesus says, if you don't hate your mother, father, spouse, siblings, children, or even over even your own life, you cannot be my disciples. What? I don't think this is telling us to, to do such a thing. This is actually pretty common in Jewish uh, storytelling is to use extreme examples and extreme language. And in that moment, he needs to make extreme examples because for a lot of people, family's been at the focal point of their life. They work hard for their family. They spend more time at the office for their family. They do certain things. They kind of give up on church sometimes for their family. And Jesus uses an extreme example of saying, you must hate in order to follow Jesus. It's a, it's a kind of a Jewish storytelling trend. It's not telling us that we have to hate our families. It's to draw an example, to really parse out, to get close to that bullseye and say, what is at the exact center of your life? Your family has always been the bullseye. Your family has always been the focal point of all your decisions, and rightfully so. Your kids are why you work hard. Your kids are why you took that high-paying job that means spending less time with them. But Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, I'm to be the dead center of everything. Zoom in on those relationships, and I should be at the center of your marriage. I should be at the center of your kids' relationships. I should be at the center of your job and why you make the decisions that you do. If your marriage is on the line, don't go to the mission trip. Stay at home and rebuild that marriage in the way that I've taught you to through relationships of trust and self-sacrifice and giving and loving and mutuality. Don't, don't skip your daughter's dance recital. Go to your daughter's dance recital and be the parent that I've modeled you to be, one that God is for you. The cost of discipleship isn't bumping your family down, isn't bumping your spouse or your children down on a list. The cost of discipleship is assessing your life and asking what's the very center of it. And it's the recognition that sometimes you've not been on the mark. And it's a willingness to refocus your life on Christ. Is the new job Faithful to who you are as a follower of Christ? Is that new decision um, about what job career is about the paycheck or is it about Christ? Is it about the paycheck or is it about the family? And if it is about the family, you could justify it in a number of different ways, saying, well, I need to work longer so I can have more for my family. Well, that's at the cost of spending time with them. Do your daily decisions reflect your desires or do they reflect Christ? Following Christ, Jesus is in, again, the peak of his ministry, and he's luring in everyone. And you can see what it would look like to follow Christ. You'd see the wholeness in people who have been healed. You'd see the opportunities and the abundance in the feeding of the 5,000. You'd see that life with Jesus is absolutely amazing. It's the best decision that you could make. But there is a real cost to discipleship, Jesus warns. Recentering takes work. Recentering takes intentionality. Following Jesus will require that you make changes in your life. But boy, will it change your life forever. Amen.